Lord Jesus, we, we humble ourselves before you. In our time of need, in our difficult moments, we thank you that you are the hope of the world. Born so many years ago, but born to die and be raised again, to suffer in our place, to give us life through your death. Lord, may we honor you today through obedience and submission and through praise from our lips. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The song that Ben sang is about the birth announcement of Jesus Christ, and we'll focus on that this morning in the scripture that we'll read, but I remember distinctly, especially one particular birth announcement from our own four children, and it just so happens to be the last of our four children, and I say last meaning that's it, <laughs> that's it, um, my wife said amen, and so Duke, our youngest, who is now just over two years old, was, uh, was a little bit of a secret for a while. We kept him under wraps, so to speak, until you couldn't keep it under wraps anymore. And then when finally we were ready to tell our family at a birthday party, and all the family had gathered, and we first told our children. We hadn't even told them yet. And so we gathered them into the van uh, just sort of for a private moment and let them know that, that mom and daddy were going to have another baby. And the girls were so excited. They were, they were kind of jumping around and just loving it and, and really excited. And Hank started crying. <laughs> and I thought, what in the world is wrong with this little boy, you know? And, and he was about five years old. And I said, Hank, what, what's wrong? Well, there were two things that were wrong with Hank uh, when we told him that. First of all, he was concerned about his mom. He said, I don't want mom to have to go to the hospital. I reassured him. I said, that, well, that's okay. That's exactly the way that it should happen. Uh, obviously, you want to be in the hospital, if at all possible, when you have the baby. I know of folks who didn't quite make it all the way there, and they would have chosen to be there. So I said, well, that's okay. So he was all right. And then really what he was upset about, finally when we got to the core of the issue, he said, I just don't want another sister. <laughs> I thought, well, all right. So needless to say, Hank jumped around when we found out that our fourth was a boy. You know, children, uh, at the time when you discover that you're going to have them, they certainly can bring a lot of joy. Uh, but children also uh, can bring a lot of sorrow into life. There's no question about that. We see that in our world uh, in the last few days, that the events that happen to children can bring great sorrow. Children can fill your heart. And many of you have experienced that. And they can also rip your heart from your chest. And many of you have experienced that as well. Uh, parents, I really believe, regardless of what they say and do, deep down inside, they have no greater concern. For the most part, parents are like this. No greater concern than what happens to their children. Uh, that, that initial excitement of finding out that you're pregnant is quickly met with the reality and responsibility that comes with being a parent and it can be very overwhelming. The story that we'll see this morning is about a young Hebrew girl named Mary who began the journey of parenthood, and we'll see that in the scripture we'll look at today. But her child was like no other that's ever been born. The scripture today and the sermon, I really believe, will speak to individuals. It will speak to us as a church. It will speak to our community. It will speak to our nation. 
and it will speak ultimately to our world. So turn with me to the book of Luke in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, and then Luke, followed by John. One of the Gospels, so if you've got your Bible handy, please turn there. I want you to be able to follow along, and if you don't have a Bible of your own uh, that, that you find readable, that you find that you can use, then please let me know at the end of the service, and we'll be happy to help you get one. But Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. A passage that you may not know by heart, but you probably have at least heard read or referenced or preached about or certainly, as Ben has just done, sung about. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Rejoice, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will, God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, How can this be, since I have not been intimate with a man? The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's slave, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. And of course, the story goes on. And she has the baby, Jesus. And her life is forever changed. And praise God, the world was forever changed. There's uh, some structure and characteristics to this particular passage that I think are very important for us to look at this morning to help us understand what really is the message that's going on here. Uh, Luke and the other gospel stories, they, they break the silence that God had had for nearly four or five hundred years. You realize between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, there, there was no re new revelation from God. Essentially, God kept his mouth shut. Essentially, God didn't do anything new in the nation of Israel during that whole time. And it's the gospel story that breaks the silence of God and gives us more revelation for him. So they announce, these gospel writers, including Luke, they announce what God is doing next and through whom he is doing it. So it's important for us to consider the people that are in the story. You realize they didn't have the gospel of Luke written out for them. They didn't read the story. They were, they were the story. Uh, you, you have to understand that we read the story from a historical perspective. They were the story. God shows up to Mary. She didn't have any point of reference. She had no idea. She didn't know uh, that you know, maybe she'd already read Matthew and Mark. She hadn't read those books yet. She didn't know what was going on. No clue. So the people in the story, as it unfolds, are important for us to look at. And I want you, as best you can, to take your mind and place it in the mind of one of these people in the story. Mary, this morning, we'll look at. They're also the folks who first read the story. You realize that we're not the first people to read the Bible, that it wasn't written directly to us in our culture today. It was written for a specific purpose to the Jewish people back during that time that they may understand the full revelation of God and know what he was doing 
in breaking his silence. And so there are people who read that, and we need to think along those lines. And certainly we'll have some, some, some implications and applications for us today. The people in the story may or may not have understood all that was going on. The folks who read it may or may not have believed everything that they were reading. This morning I want us to focus really and mainly on the folks in the story. Seeing, seeing things on their level as best we can, putting ourselves in their shoes, and looking at the structure and the characteristics of this particular story. The first part that I want us to see sort of as a, I guess as a type of writing, and this will sound really fancy, and I don't mean it to. I told this to my wife yesterday. I really just want us to understand that this is part of what, what became known uh, in the Scripture here. Uh, we see in the Old Testament several different instances of this, and this really... I believe, is a continuation of what's known as an oracle of salvation. You see it on the back of your bulletin. An oracle of salvation. Now, the thread that holds together both the Old Testament and the New Testament is salvation. That's the thread that holds it all together. Salvation in the Old Testament primarily referenced in Exodus through the deliverance from slavery. Salvation in the New Testament by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ again deliverance from slavery, this time in a spiritual sense. Salvation is expressed throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, by the forgiveness of sin, by justification, sanctification, those words Jesus cleaning us up, through deliverance from difficulties and enemies. If you read the Psalms, you realize they're calling out for salvation all the time in a physical sense. So God's acts of goodness, His care, His justice, His grace, His answering the prayers of, of sinners and of His people, His promises, His blessings, all of that together represents the salvation story that unfolds in Scripture. Now there were certain times when God would give a word directly to His people known as an oracle of salvation. God's word directly to the people. Now the people in the Old Testament and the folks that we find here in the beginning of the New Testament lived in some difficult days. They had some very difficult times. They struggled with certain things. It seemed as if God had promised them certain things that were not coming true. It seemed as if God had abandoned them on certain cases or forgotten them, and they struggled with that, wondering if that really was the case. And it was often during those times when they wondered, God, where are you? God, what's going on? God, I don't understand. It was during those times, quite often, when God would show back up on the scene in a very direct way and remind them through an oracle, a statement directly to his people, that he's still there. His promises are still true. That he would indeed save them. Now there are two main parts, really, to every oracle from God. There's a messenger that he normally sends. In this case, we have the angel Gabriel as the messenger. And then there's the word of salvation, which we'll see in just a minute. The main purpose of these instances throughout the Old Testament, and what we see in the Gospels at the beginning, was to reassure God's people that he hears them, that he's committed to his promises, and that he'll save them from their current circumstances. That's what God routinely reminded them of. And so it's God, through these oracles, who tells the people that he's always with them, he loves them, he knows them, he's going to transform their difficulties into something good for his people. And in Luke chapter 1, what we find is, once again, a messenger from God who appears on the scene to speak to one of God's children. And in reality, the whole chapter, Luke chapter 1, really forms a, a big oracle that God is showing back up on the scene to speak directly to the people, revealing to him, to them rather, his promises, his faithfulness, and his coming deliverance. 
if you know the story, the Christmas story, you know that at the beginning of, of Luke chapter 1, an angel has already shown up to the man who will become the father of John the Baptist. Now, if you, if you flip back just one page or so, look with me in Luke chapter 1, verse 13. The man who the angel shows up to is known as Zechariah. The angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. So there's, there's the beginning of this. And here's the oracle of salvation. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will never drink wine or beer, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, talking about Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah, like a prophet, and turn the, the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous and to make ready a, for the Lord a prepared people. Then we see Gabriel show up to Mary and say, guess what? You're going to be the mother of the person that was talked about in that particular passage. And so we see Gabriel here with a message of salvation for the world. It helps to get a little bit of an idea, honestly, what was going on at the time so that we can fully understand how impactful this particular oracle of salvation, these events would have been for the Jewish people, God revealing himself to them. So, to, so in order to understand, I want to give you just a brief history lesson. And, and some of you hated history. I taught history, studied history in college, and then was stuck teaching high school sophomores world history for four years. I've told you before, high school sophomores don't even like themselves. They just, it is, it is the black hole of life for them, I think. They're not a freshman anymore, things aren't new, and yet they're not a junior where they've got something to look forward to or a senior where they've got senioritis. They're just stuck, and there I was stuck with them. So hopefully this morning will be a little less, less painful than, than those experiences for them and for me. Let me catch you up just real quick. Toward the end of the Old Testament, in 597 B.C., if you're taking notes, 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, I see you writing that down, I like that, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, captured Jerusalem. And with that capture, he exiled many of the Jews back to Babylon. Uh, a revolt from the king uh, who was put in charge led to the destruction of Jerusalem. It's wiped out. Temple's gone and all that. A few years later, 539 B.C., Cyrus, who was the king of Persia, captured Babylon. All right, so you Babylonians take over Jerusalem. The, Pers the uh, Persians take over Babylonia. And in that, he ended some of the exile or at least exile for some of the Jewish people. You see that in the, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, Persian control of Palestine lasted until 331 B.C. when Alexander the Great took over and defeated the Persians. When he died at a very young age, his, his kingdom was split into four parts. Four of his generals took it over. Two of those happened to be in Egypt and Syria, which became important for the Jewish people because there were a lot of Jews in those areas. Syria defeated Egypt in 198 B.C., as you follow the, 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 the progression, and gained control of Palestine, where, where all the Jews lived. The Syrian ruler was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. You don't have to write his name down because you probably couldn't spell it anyway. It's hard enough to pronounce. But he was a guy who began to attempt to change Jewish culture into his own, the Greek culture known as Hellenism. So he takes over Jerusalem, he makes it illegal to practice circumcision, to observe the Sabbath, to observe the festivals, to own copies of portions of the, the, the Old Testament and so on. And ultimately, which was the absolute disgrace, he erects a statue of Zeus in the temple of the Jews. You can imagine their horror. Not only has their land been taken from them, they were exiled, 
But now their central place of worship, the holy place of God, now has within it the statue of a false god. They were mortified. Uh, they, they, they eventually revolt and, and essentially ended the rule of the Syrians uh, over Palestine. There were still some influences and so on. There was a family known as the Maccabean family. They began to rule the Jews in about 167 B.C. And, and their rule brought some religious freedom, some national freedom. Eventually, they make a treaty with what remaining Syrian power was there that gave the Jews release from national taxation and gave them some national autonomy. So they're beginning to get back some of what they had lost. The problem was that the Jews during this time, in order to protect those things, gave their rulers more power than they needed. And as the old saying goes, absolute power corrupts absolutely, that's exactly what happened to these Jewish rulers. They began to be just like everybody else thirsty for power, vicious to protect it, and so on. And so, unfortunately, uh, some unrest and potential chaos followed because they realized that these leaders aren't following the Lord. And so as a result, a civil war breaks out over what to do, what's going on, and the Roman general named Pompey seizes the opportunity and in 63 B.C. turns Judea into a Roman province. Julius Caesar at the time rises to power and is murdered in 44 B.C., not long before Jesus is born. His nephew, Octavian, who took the name Caesar Augustus, took the throne, defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and brought what was known as the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, which really was a forced peace under threat of military action, don't do anything, so they had peace. And he divided the empire, the Roman Empire, into two types of provinces. There were some that were peaceful and some that weren't. Well, Palestine happened to be one of the provinces where there was a lot of unrest, a lot of problems. And so that province would be ruled directly by the emperor under the influence of a local ruler, a local king. Herod the Great, the Herod that we see at the beginning of the Christmas story, was the king of the Jews at the time when Jesus was born. And he was a vicious man, to say the least. Had several wives, several children, killed several of them in order to prevent them from taking the throne from him. A vicious, vicious man. So you can imagine how he treated uh, his people if he treated his family that way. So life for the Jews during this time was not easy, and they were desperate for deliverance from the powers that had ruled over them and, can, and kept them from being a nation like they wanted to be. And so that's what happens between the Old Testament in the New Testament. During that time, you can imagine if God's not speaking to the people like he once did and sort of leaving them on their own, it seems, they are desperate for the one that was promised through the Old Testament prophecy known as the Messiah to come and rescue them. So during this time when the Romans take over, at the time of Christ's birth, there is a heightened awareness and desire for the one who would come to free them, at least they thought, from the Roman power. Most Jews anticipated that God would use a human being to bring freedom from the Roman Empire, that that person would take it by force. What they needed was salvation and deliverance and hope that only the Messiah could provide. And so it's into that moment of need and desperation and hopelessness that God, once again, beginning in the Gospels, speaks to his people. You see where it all connects. You see how desperate they must have been. He tells them 
that he himself, God himself, will come in the form of Jesus Christ. And in their moment of despair, God appears. And God begins to rescue. Jesus would be inserted into the lives of God's people and they would never be the same. And at the time that Jesus was sent, they certainly were, as I mentioned, looking for that deliverer. They were looking for and hoping for and counting on and thinking they most needed a physical deliverance. Somebody to give them new government. Somebody to give them new laws. Somebody to approve their religion. Somebody to give them freedom from the threats and the evil that they faced. It may sound to some of you like that's our world today. But God's concerns, and you have to understand this, though it's not completely understandable. God's concerns were bigger and deeper and better than what they imagined. And yet many have missed it. He had rescued them physically before through releasing them from slavery in Egypt by the hand of Moses. But now, in the Gospels, we see God is going far beyond a mere physical deliverance. And He's rescuing the world spiritually once and for all. They wanted freedom from their suffering. God sent them a Savior to suffer for them. They wanted a new way of living. And so he sent the Savior to die. They, they wanted things on the outside to be changed. And he sent a Savior to change them from the inside out. You see how God works? You see how his mind is so far above ours? We have no idea what we need. And God who created us does. And has met our deepest need through Jesus Christ. And today, just like these Jews, the time of the New Testament, in their moment of desperation, so are we. I'm sure each of you have read or watched enough news in the last few days to realize that we are, we are struggling, to say the least. Many of you are still reeling from those events to see innocent children slaughtered. Innocent people murdered, taken from this world. To see parents who will never again hold that child. It's beyond words. I'll be honest with you. Maybe you were like this. I was shaking on Friday. I really was. I sent an email yesterday. Maybe some of you got that. I, I couldn't write anything on Friday. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get my mind around what was going on. It is a moment of absolute desperation. And it rocks us to our core. And in many ways, it parallels what the Jews were going through when everything precious to them was taken. Everything they considered holy was desecrated. And all that they had believed about God seemed to be up in the air. And God seemed to be silent. And it's to that that God sends Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, to their most desperate moment. Some of you may not be reeling from that event as much as you realize your own life is just as wrecked as that community in Connecticut by those events. You say, I didn't need that to cause me the issues that I have. There are many folks even here today whose lives are wrecked by sin, and you don't know how to stop it. 
Your life is wrecked by depression or anger or hopelessness or confusion or despair or fear or longing to find some kind of meaning in this world. And today, just like the Jews in the beginning of the Gospels, today we need hope. And today we need freedom from our suffering. And today we need a new way of living. And we want things to be different. And today, God offers the same life-changing, all-encompassing oracle of salvation that was proclaimed in Luke chapter 1, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the sinless one, born of a virgin, the Holy One from heaven, came to live and to die and to be raised again for our salvation, to bring us hope, to free us from suffering, to give us a new way of living, and to make things different from the inside out. The same message, the same truth, into a different situation but to same human people. And so this is the answer to your wrecked life, to your sin, to your depression, your anger, your hopelessness, your confusion, your despair, your fear, your search for meaning, your emptiness. Jesus Christ and He alone is the answer. I can offer you nothing more than that. But when I offer you that, understand you are offered everything, everything you need. You may not believe it, You may not understand it, but it is the truth of Scripture that He alone is all that you need. This is the answer for our churches, our communities, our nation, our world. We need to be changed from the inside out by the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything else is just a decoration on the outside. If we are not changed, if our country, if our world is not changed from the inside out, it doesn't matter who's in charge. It doesn't matter what laws exist. It doesn't matter what happens on the outside because change, true spiritual God-ordained change, starts on the inside, and that is the only hope for our world. And so our prayer must be that we as a church, we as a community, we as a nation, we as a world are changed from the inside out. The answer to the issues that we face and the evil we see in the world has to begin with the world being changed one heart at a time. So let's not assume that what we need is merely a a physical rescue like the Jews wanted during their time. Let's assume that God knows what we need and that's why he provided Jesus for us. Let's assume that God's concerns are bigger and deeper and better than what we imagine. And let's not miss what we truly need, the salvation of Jesus Christ and the transformation it brings to each and every part of life. And so first today we see this oracle of salvation, that God is here, that he sees us, he knows us, he loves us, he has provided salvation for us. That is the message of Christmas, that God is here. And also included in this particular passage is what's known as a commission story. Inside of this, as you might first think, which is not wrong to think, this is a commission to Mary for what she will be involved with. She will be commissioned for God's use in his unfolding plan of salvation for the world. Now, this description of what God has called her to do sort of breaks down into some various parts. And maybe you'd just like to to make a note of these. I'm going to run through these quickly. At first, you have what you might call the introduction. Look in verses 26 and 27. Sixth month, angel Gabriel sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Introduces who she is, and where she is. Nazareth, and it's appropriately called here a town instead of a city. Some versions will say a city, and you might think of 
the, the, say, Louisville, the biggest city here in Kentucky. That's not what Nazareth was. It was a town at best and a village probably more likely. A small, insignificant place off the beaten path, away from the major trade routes. And here is this Mary, an ordinary girl who may have been as young as 12 years old, engaged to an ordinary man in an ordinary way in an ordinary town. And I want you to know, though, that the promise of God stands that if God shows up and uses someone like this, and we see this isn't uncommon in Scripture, He always uses ordinary people to accomplish His extraordinary mission. Always. I don't know who you are and where you are today and how you feel about yourself. God could never use me. Look at the story God wrote in the Scripture and the people He used. Mary, a young girl in a town maybe with, with one flashing traffic light and a stop sign. Maybe, maybe a corner grocery store with one gas pump out front. Old one. That's where Mary's from. And yet God used her. Then you have the confrontation with the angel. Confrontation just meaning he's getting her attention. The angel came to her, verse 28, and said, Rejoice, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she's deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. You realize that most of the time that when the angels or the messengers of God showed up, the prophets, what are they proclaiming? Judgment and doom. Turn or burn, they say. That's exactly what the message. So Mary said, oh my goodness, what does God want with me? And why is an angel standing before me? But God used this angel to get her attention, to affirm her standing before the Lord, to affirm God's intentions toward her. I wonder how God has gotten your attention recently. I wonder what things break your heart. What things do you get lost in? And you just say, I could, this is what I live for. Or what things make you the most angry with the way things are in the world? Maybe God wants those things to get your attention. Because God will use those whose attention is fixed on Him, even if you don't know what it all means. Mary wondered, what in the world is going on? God may be right now stirring within this congregation people he wants to use in miraculous ways. Maybe someone who God is calling into full-time ministry. Maybe someone God wants to use here in this body or in your place of business in this community in a powerful way. And you say, God's got my attention. The third part then is the call. The angel told her, don't be afraid. For you have found favor with God. Now listen, you'll conceive and you'll give birth to a son. You'll call his name Jesus. He will be great and he'll be the son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him his throne, the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Here's what God wanted Mary to do. Mary, you'll give birth to a son. I want to use you to be the, to, to be the, the earthly mother, the son of God. She's called to participate in this unfolding story of salvation by being the mother of Jesus. And she will be the one through whom birth to our Savior is given. The great one, it says. The Son of the Most High. The one whose kingdom will never end. The very Son of God. For you and me, our call is to be used by God and His plan as well. Realize that, that God has, has not saved us just to let us sit. I had a pastor once who said... You're not saved just to sit and sour and soak and stink. That's what he said. You're not saved just to take up space in this world. Saved to be used by God. The Bible says that we are to be salt and light and to make disciples and multiply ourselves. 
based upon who you are, who God has made you, and where He has placed you, and how God has your attention, and the commands in Scripture, and your spiritual gifts, and your experiences in the past, and your interests, and your talents, all that stuff is to be a part of the call of God on your life, to be used by Him in incredible ways. God has a part for you to play in the story that He is writing. The fourth part of this narrative here, Mary asked the angel, she's got some reservations, how can this be since I've not been intimate with a man? She recognized the human limitations. She'd had no sexual contact with Joseph whatsoever. How in the world will I get pregnant without that? Legitimate question. The Bible's pretty real, if you haven't noticed. Legitimate question. For her, her limitations seemed to be what was a physical impossibility. I can't get pregnant without having sexual relations with my husband. How am I supposed to do this? She wasn't doubting God, what he had said, or what he was going to do, but she just wondered how it would be possible given the physical limitations that she brought to the table. Now for us, your physical or your spiritual seeming or your emotional limitations, your human limitations may seem to overwhelm you. Maybe it's who you are, where you are, or who you're not, or where you are not. But I can tell you this, that you will always face human limitations. And they will force you always to admit your need for the Lord's power. And Mary is admitting her need because of her limitation for the Lord's power. And guess what happens next? Verse 35, the angel told her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. He reassures her, here's what God is going to do. The Holy Spirit's going to make it happen. God provides the power. Mary, just be faithful and obedient. God will always enable you to accomplish whatever He has called you to do. Always. The pressure is on Him. Now that's great news. Whatever God has called you to do in your life, whatever spiritual mission He has placed you on, the pressure is on Him, not you. Your role is to be available and to be faithful, obedient to what God has called you to do. The angel next shows what God has already done. Consider your relative, verse 36. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Elizabeth is pregnant. An old woman who was thought to never have the opportunity to have children. You realize that one of the repeating miracles in the Bible is God bringing children to those who thought they couldn't have them. That's one of the repeating miracles in the Bible. And God here says, look what I've already done. You think it's impossible for you to have this child. Look what I've already done in your relative who was thought that could never have it. Nothing is impossible with God. Let me tell you this. In your life, it's the same truth. Nothing is impossible with God. Not what you're up against, not your struggles, not your depression, not your addictions, not your broken relationships, not your splintered family, not our messed up world is impossible for God. Not your apparent limitations that might seem to stand in your way of being used by God. Nothing is impossible with God. He has shown it before and he'll do it again. And then the conclusion, verse 38, I am the Lord's slave, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. I'm the Lord's slave. There's her humility. May it be done to me according to your word. She submits. Her answer is simply yes. Do in me what you want, Lord, and do through me whatever you want. Her answer was yes without having all the answers. Her answer was yes, even though she knew it wouldn't be easy. The penalty for adultery was stoning, was death. 
She knew it wasn't going to be easy to face what God has called her to do, but she believed that God would be true to his word, and she trusted that obeying God was worth any hardship that she might face. And our answer to the oracle of salvation and the commission story that follows must be the same. Yes, God, you do in me whatever you want. You save me, you change me, you renew me, you overshadow me. I wonder what God needs to do in you today. What is it that he needs to overcome? It's the power of the death and resurrection that you and I each need in us. Because it's only by that that we are saved, that we're forgiven, that we're changed, that we have hope and peace and reconciliation with God and other people. It's only by that power can our depression subside, our anger dissipate, our jealousy go away, and our bitterness dissolve. It's only by the power of Jesus working in you that marriages can be restored and strengthened, that families are fortified, and that friendships are possible. It's only by that power that sin is overcome, that our nature is changed, and evil is conquered. So yes, Lord, you do in me what you want, whatever it may be. And yes, you do, Lord, through me, whatever you want. Commission me, Lord, for, for service in your kingdom. Use me in my marriage, my family, my church, my school, my job, friends, my community, this nation, our world. Do through me your work of grace for the world. Use me to preach and to teach and to tell your story. Use me as your hands and feet. Use me to love others in the name of Jesus. Use me to display your hope and your peace. Use me even when I don't have all the answers. Use me even though I know it won't be easy. I believe that your word is true. And I trust that obeying you, Lord, is worth any hardship I'll have to face. Do through me whatever you want. I want to ask you to bow your head for just a moment. And I want to ask you to take this opportunity for humble submission to the Lord, just like Mary. Maybe you recognize today there are several things God needs to do in you. Lord, save me, change me, make me new. Maybe there's something in you God needs to do. Recognize it today. Call it out to the Lord and submit it to Him. Yes, Lord, do in me whatever you want. Make that your prayer. As simple as that. Maybe there's somebody here who you know God has stirred your heart, gotten your attention, and is calling you for God to do something specific through you. And you'd say, yes, Lord, you do through me whatever you want. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll stand and we'll sing a few verses, and we'll close in prayer. We're going to call on God in just a moment for His amazing grace to overwhelm us, to do in us and through us whatever He wants. Lord, may that be what you do. Our answer, Lord, is yes. Do in us and through us individually and as a church whatever you want. Thank you for the oracle of salvation in our darkest moment of need and for the commission story, the promise that you always use ordinary people like us to accomplish your extraordinary mission for your glory alone. Lord, do in us your powerful work of salvation and sanctification. Do through us whatever you want. We pray in Jesus' name.